Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10... We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two da 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 of the deep dive. I'm Alex Heigl. Incredible. <laughs> and I'm Jordan Runtalk, and I can't compete with that. Well, you went overboard with some of the actual language, so I figured I had to make it a like a... A multimedia one. I yeah. like that. Exactly. And Jordan, today we're talking about one of the most curiously deathless franchises in American culture, the family that has transcended both the printed page and screens big and small for nearly a century. That's right. We're talking about the Adams Family, with Wednesday, apparently one of the most watched Netflix properties of all time at this point. We here at Too Much Information thought we'd take a fond look back down Cemetery Lane for an overview of the original weirdos. From their origins as misanthropic New Yorker cartoons, to mid-century TV stars, 90s movie stars, and now Zoomer-beloved streaming icons. We weren't recording, but I went on a long rant about how much I love the cramps. So uh, I'm sure everyone and their mother has seen that Jenna Ortega Wednesday dance scene on YouTube or TikTok or whatever. But just go listen to the PSA, everyone. Go listen to the cramps. I was like the exact right age to get into Adam's Family when those movies came out. I would have been five or six, and I think the reruns were probably on TV Land or one of those places. Like, I definitely remember seeing those, the black and white reruns, because I had a big old crush on (laughs) Carolyn Jones, uh, who who plays Morticia, and then an even bigger crush on Christina Ricci as Wednesday, and it's not creepy for me to say that, because I was five and she was (laughs) twelve. So it would have worked. <laughs> and she was in Casper. Oh, All right. Such a crush on Christina Ricci. Still do. Don't tell my wife. She doesn't listen to these. Uh, 
But my father-in-law does. <laughs> uh, Jordan, I'm going to go ahead and take a wild swing. And as with a lot of these, bet that Adam's family is not your wheelhouse, right? You're Gilligan's Island family, aren't you? You, you, you Gilligan's Island. Yeah, we, we were we were a Nick at Night household as opposed to a TV land household. And Nick at Night, I don't think, had the Adams family. Uh, no, you're right. My crushes in this era are indicative of my media consumption habits. They are in order... Madeline, the little red-headed French orphan, was my first crush. Uh, second crush was the woman on the Mandarin Orange Celestial <laughs> Seasonings tea box. Not the bear. No, not the bear. <laughs> uh, third crush was Penny from the Inspector Gadget cartoon. Mm. And finally, after graduating from animated characters to actual humans, Winnie Cooper from The Wonder Years. And I yes. will stand by that one. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, the Adams Family was never really uh, on. I think, or I lived. I don't remember ever seeing it on TV, and uh, I never really had the horror bug, so the movies never mm. appealed to me when we were kids. Well, uh, they're not, I, think I, I don't really... Were they less... Like, I remember them being pretty big, actually. Oh, but yeah, I, they and, were huge. The, yeah, right, but so just never for you? No, I just... Uh, creepy things frightened me i was an easily scared kid <laughs> and yeah i just i i that energy uh didn't appeal to me i was too busy okay. watching my national geographic titanic documentaries <laughs> um wasn't learning about frozen bodies being pulled from the atlantic but you were like "Ooh, women with black hair no <laughs> i'm trying to remember yeah I was, it was more like fantasy stuff or like like alice in wonderland type of things oh, was sure. kind of my it was kind of my thing. So yeah, this is a total blind spot for me. Um I also think I had more exposures to the monsters in this era. So mm. I think I always thought of them as the original mistakenly mm-hmm. so. Uh it's like the old Led Zeppelin versus the Who situation. <laughs> the Who got to me first, so my allegiance was with them and then I always thought Led Zeppelin kind of seemed like imitators. Um in this analogy, I guess the monsters are the Who, which uh what do you think of that comparison? Are the monsters like the Who scams, and Adam's family actually. like Led Zeppelin? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, the Who are a little bit more cartoonish, you mm. know, uh, and and a little bit less sinister. Uh, mm. Yeah, you know, Jimmy Page did a lot of heroin and bought Aleister Crowley's mansion and was probably a statutory, allegedly a statutory rapist. Uh, <laughs> So I guess that makes him more of a Charles Adams character than a than <laughs> a, a, a recycled Universal Monsters archetype. I do like the monsters. I just think they were so like like the sensibility is just so different. And I think we'll talk about this, but like those original Charles Adams cartoons are some of them are very dark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about the one he never got published. Um, they anyway. reminded me of Edward Gorey a little bit. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Well, from the real-life cartoonist's brief time dating Jackie O to the battle between the beloved 1960s TV show and the pale imitators of the monsters, and to how director Barry Sonnenfeld escaped dealing with nightmare producer Scott Rudin for the 1991 movie, here is everything you didn't know about The Addams Family. Charles Samuel Adams was born in Westfield, New Jersey on January 7th, 1912. Oh, shit, he just turned 100 last year. The son of Charles Huey Adams, a piano company executive, and Grace M. Spear. 
He was distantly related to John Adams and John Quincy Adams, despite the, the different spellings of their last name, and suffragette Jane Adams, which is funny. There's a lo- there's a biography of him called A Cartoonist's Life that just uh, that came out a few years back. It's really, really in-depth. So there you go. Charles Adams has roots in the actual founding of the country. That the Adams nuts. family are America. <laughs> the real America is the Adams family. Fascinated by the macabre early on, a young Charles Adams spent a lot of time visiting the Presbyterian Cemetery on Mountain Ave in uh, Westfield. He also enjoyed pranking and scaring people. Uh, He recalled an interview once, we had a dumbwaiter in our house and I'd get inside on the ground floor and then very quietly I'd haul myself up to grandmother's floor and then I'd knock on the door and when she came to open the door, I'd jump out and scare the wits out of her. (laughs) Uh, at the age of eight, he was caught breaking into a Victorian mansion near his home. And when America entered World War One, a young Charles Adams began drawing pictures of Kaiser Wilhelm II being stabbed, shot, run over by a train, or boiled in oil. He loves boiling people in oil. He that's sure so- does. <laughs> and trains. Like, isn't that like something like Jeffrey Dahmer would do? Barry Sonnenfeld is uh, his director cameo in the first movie is as uh, a passenger on one of the trains that Gomez crashes. From almost the time he could hold a crayon in his chubby baby hand, Charlie had begun drawing with a happy vengeance, Linda H. Davis writes in the biography I just mentioned. Uh, He was encouraged by his father to draw, and a young Charles did cartoons for the Westfield High School paper before going on to study at a succession of schools, Colgate University, then University of Pennsylvania, and then the Grand Central School of Art in New York, which, yes, was located atop Grand Central Station. Oh, wow. Um, And as soon as he saw The New Yorker, supposedly he thought, that's the magazine that I want to work for. But he detoured getting there via the pulp magazine True Detective, which is where the show gets its name. His job there <laughs> entailed lightning blood stains <laughs> and using X's to mark the locations of bodies in crime scene photos and illustrations, <laughs> which is so appropriate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But he was relatively unfulfilled by that gig and uh, left that mag after selling a few cartoons to the New Yorker. Supposedly, his very first cartoon for the New Yorker was in February of 1932, a sketch of a window washer for which he made $7.50, which seems like a lot. His most famous one for the magazine is definitely a 1940 cartoon, uh, which is getting into the fool's errand of describing a visual medium in podcasting but it's the famous one where you see there's one skier looking down a hill and he sees another guy who has just gone down the same hill and the tracks of this second man's skis go around a tree and it's just Uh, like such a neat little visual gag that you just like go you kind of do a double take of it i almost thought Um, it was like a mad magazine thing kind of yeah, yeah yeah but it um that generated more reprint requests for the new yorker than any other that year um, it's his most famous work for them. Uh, supposedly, two months after it was published, he got a letter from a psychologist in Illinois who told him that she had been using this image to determine the intelligence of people uh, that she was evaluating. She would ask them why the image was funny, and if they didn't get it, she said, you are not as smart as a nine-year-old child. <laughs> so, that's just a psychiatry in the first half of the 20th century, folks. Friend of the pod, archaic psychiatric evaluations. <laughs> um, Abbott and Costello's 1943 film Hit the Ice recreated it as a visual gag. So very funny, just series of, uh, of, of visual lineage of that particular New Yorker cartoon. That is great. 
The first Adams Family cartoon appeared in 1938 and featured only Morticia and Lurch being pitched by a clearly out-of-his-depth vacuum cleaner salesman. The characters were not named at the time and only got names once the television show hit the air in 1964. I didn't realize that. Adams preferred Repelli, a pay on repellent, instead of Gomez, and he originally suggested the name Pubert instead of Pugsley, <laughs> which didn't pass network censors. But they did use it as the name of the baby in Adams Family Values, so it did Pubert. make it in there after all. Yeah. It's such a gross sounding word. I yeah. Hate it. Yeah. <laughs> He named Wednesday after the nursery rhyme Monday's Child, which includes the line, Wednesday's Child is Full of Woe. And according to longtime New Yorker cartoon editor Robert Mankoff, Adams only drew about two dozen Adams Family cartoons, very few, if any, of which feature all family members. Wait, he only drew like 24? Well, that's what I'm not sure about. I was trusting the New Yorker because <laughs> this was from the New Yorker. It's from their cartoon editor. I would believe him. But... Mankoff might actually be referring to the number that were actually published in the New Yorker. And Charles Adams was a New Yorker contributor for like decades, but he didn't always, his cartoons weren't always starring his family. They would just be other like weird little one-off sight gags or whatever. And he drew a bunch of covers for them, uh, 68 something. And he published between 12 and 1300 cartoons for the New Yorker. Wow. But I have only seen, I've seen the total number of Adams family cartoons uh, pegged from like 58, to 150 i think so but he published books of them like so uh, and collections so it's like a weird situation of like how many actually made it into the archives also they were never called the adams family that was like a thing that came up when the show came on like they were never never named any of them they, it wasn't like it didn't come up on in the new yorker as like and next from the adams family like they were just one-off cartoons wow that is so interesting i didn't realize how much of the identity of the Adams family was from the TV show. I thought a lot of that was in place for the cartoons. Yep. Uh, the character of Gomez was Charles Adams' attack on Thomas E. Dewey, who was then the Republican governor of New York, while the family member added the last, Uncle Fester, was the one he later said he related to the most. <laughs> Thomas E. Dewey, that was the guy who was supposed to, who was slated to beat Harry Truman in yeah, the Dewey defeats election, Truman. right? Yeah, and if you look up pictures of him, he has the Gomez mustache. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, there's <laughs> that. Really funny. doesn't know, there's that famous picture of Harry Truman standing victorious on the podium after the election of 1948, and he's holding an early edition of uh, some local paper that's mistakenly printed Dewey beats Truman, because I guess no one thought he'd win. Uh, the family got up to all sorts of... Uh, misanthropic shenanigans they poured boiling oil on christmas carolers they asked their neighbors for a cup of cyanide and their idea of child's play was to roll boulders onto passing cars uh william sean new yorker's second editor said of charles adams cartoons he translates something which is already fairly frightening into something almost cozy which yeah that's fair yeah <laughs> uh, Mankoff, another New Yorker editor, added that Charles Adams, quote, tapped into that vein of American Gothic that has a touch of paranoia about it, seeing behind every comforting facade the uncomfortable truth about the duality of human nature. But where Gothic literature usually combined these themes with romance, Adams made the horror hilarious, disturbing, but at the same time friendly, identifiable, and acceptable. So he worked for the Signal Corps during World War II, uh, making like propaganda cartoons and animation one of his co-workers was a pre-marvel comics stan lee in new york uh so yes there is a world in which stan lee and charles adams like hung out <laughs> um but he never stopped working as a cartoonist for the new yorker and as his celebrity grew 
sort of played up a lot of the bits about him. Alfred Hitchcock was a fan who showed up his place in Manhattan. He owned two original of the cartoons. And there's a he name drops Charles Adams in North by Northwest. I think it's Cary Grant who says something like, the two of you sitting there, that's a that's an image that only Charles Adams could have come up with. Their friendship makes so much sense to me. Hitchcock, especially like the TV show Hitchcock did, like that dour, dry, like turning to face the camera with like an axe in his head and stuff like that. Like, yeah, that makes so much sense. Super misanthropic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rumors about his eccentricities abounded. Much of the decoration of the Adams home in the TV show was basically pulled from his apartment. He (laughs) decorated his apartment with uh, suits of armor. He had a huge collection of medieval weaponry like uh, spears and swords, flintlock rifles, working crossbows. He had a coffee table made from a Civil War era embalming table. Uh, he had a human thigh bone lying around. This <laughs> is just a, a grab bag of stuff I read from a bunch of old magazine articles about him. I didn't realize that he was this much of like an eccentric character or like a known character. Like he seems like he was like he was almost a, a society figure. Yeah. He apparently he was quite the like schmoozer and bon vivant. Like he was really, it's so weird to think of like the Adams family guy being this like Social. John, John Cheever esque, <laughs> like mid century Franny and Zoe, New York high society guy. But he was very much like a man about town. That is wild. Wow. Uh, But he did play up some of his eccentric reputation. He'd respond to fan mail on letterhead inscribed the Gotham rest home for mental defectives. He wore flaming red pajamas or Knights Templar robes to parties, and he dressed as Abe Lincoln for an awards ceremony. That was not a costumed event. (laughs) But his biographer, Linda Davis, said that it was tremendously difficult to find anyone who had anything bad to say about him. And by all accounts, Charles Adams was a very lovely man. I just love this. He was a claustrophobic who was afraid of snakes for all of his spooky, <laughs> ooky, gooey stuff or whatever the words are in the tong. Uh, <laughs> didn't like snakes. Him and Indiana Jones. Uh, Charles Adams once told James Thurber, his fellow New Yorker cartoonist, I've gotten a lot of letters about my work, most of them from criminals and subhumans who want to sell me ideas. <laughs> Some of the worst ideas come from a minister in Georgia. <laughs> And incidentally, there was one Adams cartoon that supposedly didn't make it to the New Yorker, a nurse handing a swaddled baby over to a sinister person in an alleyway with the caption, don't wrap it, I'll eat it on the way home. (laughs) That's incredible. That is incredible. Uh, According to the Adams Chronicles by Stephen Cox, another Adams biography, Adams repeatedly submitted this cartoon to the New Yorker magazine and was turned down every single time. Supposedly, it was like a bellwether of like how his mental health was doing at any point. Like basically colleagues would like start talking about like, oh, Charles is in a bad place again. He submitted the the baby's (laughs) cartoon. This would just go happen repeatedly in cycles. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much longer on him, but I would like to talk about his love life. There's very interesting stuff there. He was this big car aficionado and in fact died behind the wheel of his car in Manhattan in 1988. And he, his big date thing was to take women on drives down into Pennsylvania and and beyond from New York, doing like 80 on the highway. And he was linked to Hollywood stars like Greta Garbo and Joan Fontaine and incredibly a post-assassination Jackie Kennedy. Linda Davis talked about it a bit. There was this sense that like they knew it was never going to like go anywhere, but they did date repeatedly. And there was this funny story where uh, they were at a party. They had been invited to someone's house to stay over. And because it's the 60s and 
her husband had just been shot in the head publicly. Um, there was. I, I, I don't a, know if you guys heard, but uh... <laughs> spoiler alert! Spoilers for this. the nineteen sixties. Um, they were supposed to be in separate bedrooms, and uh, someone like came into their their uh, Jackie's room, and Charles Adams was like sitting on the bed in like full nineteen sixties old man like pajamas and a smoking jacket, like fully clothed. Nothing. They weren't caught like in flagrante or anything, but they was still like, oh goodness. And uh, they left, and Jackie supposedly turned to him and was like, "Well, I'll be invited back, but you won't." <laughs> <laughs> Um, it has long been rumored that his first wife, who's a woman named Barbara Jean Day, was the basis for Morticia, but I think it was kind of a chicken or the egg situation. Like, I think he just liked women with dark hair. And then after the Adams family blew up, his wives just started to dress like that, <laughs> like to play everything up. His second wife, though, a woman named Estelle B. Barb, who I think later married into like becoming like actual royalty. Or, like, one of those weird, like, inbred 12 generations down the line, like, royalty and name-only Habsburg situation. Uh, He married her in 1954, and she was a little more Lady Macbeth than Morticia. She was a practicing lawyer and faked a pregnancy to get Charles Adams to marry her, and then faked a miscarriage. Oh, uh, and proceeded to convince him to sign away his rights to a lot of his work and repeatedly physically abused him. She threw one of his African spears at him. She hit him with a high heel over the head and sent him to the hospital for stitches. Uh, wound up in control of the rights to the Adams family, his portion of the Adams family, like TV rights, uh, and even conned him into signing over houses to him and taking out a $100,000 life insurance policy on himself that would pay out to her. Um, Linda Davis quotes his lawyer, a a letter his lawyer wrote to him uh, that said, I told him the last time I had word of such a move was in the picture Double Indemnity, uh, which stars Barbara Stanwyck uh, as a woman plotting to murder her husband for the insurance money. But um, Davis writes a lot about how uh, she was just shocked by how much how much this was like a textbook abusive relationship. Like she really put him through the ringer and he was just like, okay. Like I just like he remained in touch with her after all of this. Yeah, so she's uh but but his third wife, Marilyn, whose nickname was T, uh, they married in a pet cemetery in nineteen eighty. <laughs> in nineteen eighty five, uh they moved out of New York, although he kept his Manhattan apartment, uh, to Sagaponic, which I assume is in Long Island with yeah. that name. Um, where they lived the rest of their lives. Charles Adams loved dogs and never had or wanted children. Uh, which is the reason his first marriage broke up. Uh, There's a Washington Post profile in 1982 that had a great anecdote about a dog he adopted. Uh, The dog's current owner said, I'll tell you the truth, Mr. Adams. This dog detests children. And Charles Adams said, I'll take it. (laughs) Uh, T got the rights to his work back. And before she died in 2002, she established the T and Charles Adams Foundation that is dedicated to you know, preserving and archiving his work. And the ashes of those two, T and Charles, and all of their pets are interred at the pet cemetery at the swamp, the Sagaponic property, which is just such an adorable little coda to his life that at the end of it, he was happily married for eight years and his wife got all of his rights back and he's ma- he's buried with all of his dogs in his Sagaponic. I can't stop saying that word. It has such a great mouthfeel. Well... Uh, since I already went on an unprompted rant talking about the rise of monster culture in the 50s and 60s in our Monster Mash episode, 
uh, I would like to look at the bizarre coincidence of having both the Adams Family and the Munsters on air within weeks of each other through the lens of the other sitcoms airing at the time. Obviously, you know, you can just say, okay, yeah, monster culture, like, that's why we got those shows. But there's another interesting trend in sitcoms at the time, which was the period following World War II gave rise to the birth of these domestic sitcoms, right? You'd think Father Knows Best, Leave it to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet, Donna Reed, that were kind of these combination of advertisements for all kinds of household stuff and Hmm. etiquette manuals and, like, how to raise your kid, basically just, like, playing on the whole man in the gray flannel suit, American post-war prosperity, suburbia tropes, et cetera, et cetera. Of the 400 sitcoms aired between 1948 and 1978, over half of them were these like domestic situations. So that is the milieu that was just slightly in the review mirror when the Adams Family Monsters came on because just as quickly as that was sort of the dominant culture, you do get the kind of beatnik, proto-hippie uh, uh, backlash to that. Like, um, the people were like, oh, you know, Squaresville, man. Like, this, moving into the suburbs is death, and I'm, I like jazz, and I'm going to do a bunch of speed and write bad novels. Um, that's my Jack Kerouac impression. Uh, have troublesome views on race. That's my Norman Mailer impression. Um, so... TV sitcoms, where I'm getting at with all this, is that at some point, TV sitcoms uh, uh, start portraying this, like, influence of the counterculture coming at the suburbs, but they do it in the most off-kilter and bizarre way, where they have all of these outsider characters, like, coded outsiders, just move into the suburbs and be wacky. So, like, not only do you have... Yeah, Green Acres, the Monsters and the Addams Family, where they are literal, either, like goth misanthropes or actual literal movie monsters and then you have bewitched and i dream of genie with witchcraft beverly hillbillies again and then alien literal aliens my favorite martian or lost in space which is like the atomic family transplanted into space and also my mother the car (laughs) so (laughs) that was a weird show yeah but um yeah it's just that's that's what's just so funny about it to me is that they were like well Rather than directly critique these things, let's have a father who's a Frankenstein and a mother who is a Dracula and a child who's a werewolf. That's one of my favorite Simpsons quotes when they have Eddie from the Munsters on the Simpsons and Apu is like, if your mother was a Dracula and your father was a Frankenstein, why were you a werewolf? Doesn't make sense. Um, The Addams Family beat the Munsters to air by six days in September of 64. But the concept for the Munsters is like very hotly debated. It might have actually originated as early as the mid-40s when a guy named Bob Clampett, who was like a big Looney Tunes uh, animator, he pitched an idea called The Monster Family in which the dad was a Frankenstein's monster character and the mother was a vampire. And supposedly, um, according to a book by Donald F. Glutt called The Frankenstein Archive, that got as far as a pilot, which went to a an unnamed major studio but never went anywhere. So then about two decades later, uh, Chris Hayward and Alan Burns, who are working on the Rocky and Bullwinkle show in 1963, come up with their version of that exact same thing. So I don't know if it's a case of intellectual property theft by an untoward studio or just a lazy pitching, but <laughs> Burns, who also then went on to the Mary Tyler Moore show, um, probably his bigger success, Uh, said in this book, Funny You Should Ask, The Oral Histories of Classic Sitcom Storytellers by a guy named Scott Lewin. Chris and I came up with the idea of something called Meet the Munsters. We envisioned this family of very weird people, 
and here's the underlined part, we sort of stole the idea from Charles Adams and his New Yorker cartoons about these weird-looking people who lived in this house and were just bizarre. So Burns explained that he and Hayward were pitching this agent named Les Kolodny, who in turn took their pages and fed them to two writers at Universal, Norm Liebman and Ed Haas. Those writers did not know that they were not this guy's ideas. So he was basically stealing ideas, passing them off as his own, and got this greenlit. And because Universal owned the rights to Frankenstein and Dracula, they were like, well, let's make these characters instead of these weird, instead of like Charles Adams archetypes, let's make them, uh, you know, Frankenstein's monster and the Bride of Dracula. Uh, and that infuriated Burns and Hayward. They took it to the Writers Guild and it became this whole thing where they ultimately wound up with a credit, like a created by credit on the show and chunk of the merchandising cash. So there was all this drama around the monsters. Anyway, NBC executive David Levy, who became vice president of programming in 1959 and basically turned the network around at the time with shows like Dr. Kildare and Bonanza and brought Johnny Carson to the Tonight Show. Uh, he was walking down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan when he saw a copy of the collected Adams cartoon Home Bodies in a bookstore window, which he bought. And basically just got in contact with Charles Adams through the New Yorker, set up some meetings with him about adapting the cartoons into a TV show, was like, hey, can you get me names, a couple more sketches of characters? And Adams was like, okay. And then in the Adams Chronicles, that book, uh, Levy told the author Stephen Cox, Adams never had much further input or feedback after those first meetings. Uh, Charles didn't even want his name on the show. They they were literally like, I, I think it got as far as them being like, well, like, what should we call it? Like, they have to have names, right? And he was like, ah, I don't care. And I'm like, all right, we're going to call it the Adams family. And he was like, ah, fine. And he went back to sleeping with Jackie O. A bereaved Jackie O. <laughs> Which, who among us? <laughs> Commercial break. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The first casting choice for the Adams Family was John Astin, father of Sean Astin, star of The Goonies and various Lord of the Rings things, and a personal favorite of mine. Why do you love John Astin? Oh, I love Sean Astin because of The Goonies. John Astin, oh. I like him as the dad in the original Freaky Friday with Jodie okay. Foster. Um, I don't know. He just seems cool. I like his suits and uh, I like his Gomez suits. Uh <laughs> Yeah. His asbestos line Gomez suits. <laughs> oh, he's cool. And he's still alive, which yeah, he outlived pretty cool. Ninety percent of the other personalities in this. John Aston told author Stephen Cox that during the first meeting he had with the team behind the show, producer Marty Ransahoff told him that they wanted to build the series around the character of the Butler, whom they wanted John Aston to play. But NBC executive David Levy found John Aston after that initial meeting and I guess corralled him in for another meeting where he told John Aston that he wanted him as Gomez, explaining that he, quote, really saw the show as father knows best with different people. In an interview with the Television Academy Foundation, John Aston said the producers gave him a lot of leeway in terms of shaping the character of Gomez, which is where the character's Spanish-Latin roots came from. But he did battle the network over wanting to shave his hair to resemble the cartoon. And I love this. The pockets of his Gomez suit were lined with asbestos to safeguard against this habit of constantly putting his lit cigars into them. (laughs) John Aston told author Stephen Cox, we never wanted Gomez to use a short cigar. It wasn't elegant. If we got to take two, three, or four, and the cigar ash was getting too long, I would have to light up another cigar. And probably it's not a coincidence that one of the show's sponsors was cigar brand Dutch Masters. Despite having the highly carcinogenic asbestos in his pocket, which is rumored to have killed fellow spook enthusiast Warren Zevon, John Aston has, at age 92, outlived nearly everyone else from the show, including Ken Weatherwax, who played Pugsley, and his successor as Gomez in the Adams Family movies, Raul Julia, who died after wrapping the sequel to the first film, Adams Family Values. Um, Carolyn Jones, uh, Morticia, the original Morticia. She was then married to, and in the process of divorcing Aaron Spelling, uh, was not the first choice to uh, to play Morticia. Uh, Levy initially wanted uh, Joan Huntington, who was an actress who would later pivot to writing, including appropriately a 1973 documentary on Charles Manson. Uh, But Carolyn Jones, who had been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for a movie called The Bachelor Party, a couple of Golden Globes, she was the network's choice because she was more of a known quantity. Um, She split with Aaron Spelling before the show premiered. Uh, There was a New York Times report on their divorce from August of 64 
that explained the reason in charmingly vague uh, PR terms. Mr. Spelling stayed out late at night without explanation. I bet he did. Uh, funnily enough, Carolyn Jones had actually already met Charles Adams on a film set once, uh, which was an occasion marked when her poodle, Contessa, bit him. <laughs> After she agreed to do the series, Charles Adams sent her a telegram that read, I know you will make a darling Morticia, but please leave Contessa at home. <laughs> John Aston has said that he and Carolyn Jones were instantly attracted to each other, but managed to keep things professional, which made their electrifying on-screen chemistry so true to life and such a definable part of the franchise moving forward. Such a degree that I actually just sort of assumed they had an affair because, right? or, or were actually together because they just act like a poly couple. Uh, we used to do... <laughs> Right? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's, like, the big thing about this is that they were, like, the first television couple to, like, actually be physically affectionate with each other. And, and you know. Yeah, they're the couple so, the other side of the bar. Like, one or, like. Yeah. They were, like, your vibe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, John Aston said, we used to do joke promos for the show where I'd say, my wife and I are the best adjusted couple on television. This is him talking to the Baltimore Sun in 2012, which is kind of true. But the fact that Gomez and Morticia got obviously excited about one another was something the studio got letters on, which was kind of stupid, he added. <laughs> it's also worth noting that the two characters never get into a fight on screen. So, yeah, again, he's kind of right. Uh, Aston told author Stephen Cox, both of us, meaning Carolyn Jones and himself, had an idealistic attitude towards marriage. Carolyn had a marriage that wasn't working out, and I, too, had some marital problems. Both of us really wanted a good marriage, and both of us really loved our mates at the time. Each of us probably wished we could have a marriage free of problems, and both of us played that out in the show. Work spouse goals. <laughs> I know. It's so cute. It is. It's like such cute. a... Yeah. There's something about them show because this show is only two seasons, right? So uh, there's just something about them getting this little like short oasis of time where their marriages were crumbling and then just sublimating their mutual attraction into be making like one of the most adorable on-screen couples of all time. <laughs> uh, costume designer Nolan Miller said that Morticia's outfit was the most difficult one he ever had to design because it was so tight, especially around the feet, which also made it hard for actress Carolyn Jones to walk. They made dozens of identical versions of the dress for her, which took Jones 20 minutes to get in and out of. And I guess her wig and makeup took another hour and a half. Yeah, two hours to get into Morticia's look. And they 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 just Velcroed her in and out of it, um, which is a tradition that they, not the Velcro, but the incredibly restrictive stuff that they continued with uh, uh, Angelica Houston in the, in the uh, movies, which yeah. we'll get into later. Jackie Coogan! Woo! <laughs> I had no idea he was in this. Yeah, it's so funny, too, because, like, when you look at that, like, Christopher Lloyd plays the character completely differently. Like, Jackie Coogan has this actually very off-putting, high-pitched voice, but it's crazier that Jackie Coogan was, like, a child star alongside uh, Charlie Chaplin. He was in The Kid. Yeah. He was, like, one of the earliest, richest children. Chi he was basically Macaulay Culkin. He was the first kid star. I can't yeah. think of a younger, of a, like, a more famous child star. And made, early. like an ungodly amount of money like adjusted for inflation like 50 million dollars which his parents squandered yeah uh, i was gonna say yeah sued his mother and stepfather um over their mismanagement of his career resulting in the creation of a piece of legislation called the california child actors bill he really wanted to play uncle fester <laughs> he was a fan of the adams cartoons 
Um, his daughter told Cox uh, in the Adams Chronicles book, Jack went in and wasn't offered the part. He went home, got in a costume, shaved his whole head, did his makeup the way he pictured it would be, went in with the high-pitched voice, the makeup, the costume, all on his own. The producers sent everyone else home. <laughs> I love all of these stories about actors who are like, I'm getting this f***ing part. And then yeah, like, it's, it's, it's the Catwoman story. Cat, with, yeah. Uh, what's Sean her name? Young. Uh, yeah. Uh, director Sidney Landfield got into an argument with Jackie Coogan at one point in an early episode. And Coogan yelled, don't f*** with me, Sidney. I sued my own mother. Um, <laughs> Jackie Coogan had a wild, wild life, even after the child star stuff, man. He... um. He enlisted in World War II and demanded to be put in the front lines, uh, became the first glider pilot to land Allied troops behind Japanese lines during the Burma campaign. Um, so like Jimmy Stewart, he got into the war and was like, none of this propaganda stuff put me in combat. And this is insane. One of his buddies was a guy named Brooke Hart, who was the sort of wealthy kid in San Jose. And this kid was kidnapped and murdered. It was like a Lindbergh baby situation. And an enormous mob, thousands of people, went to the jail where the kidnapper and murderers were being incarcerated, took them out of the jail, and murdered them in the streets. They lynched them. And Jackie Coogan was there and involved, supposedly. So, oh, and I forgot about this. He survived a car crash in Mexico that killed his father and his father's best friend. So, Jackie Coogan... um, Saw a lot of shit. <laughs> Combat pilot, murderer, <laughs> car crash survivor, and your Uncle Fester. He was so cute as a kid. Wow. And then he was Uncle Fester. Uh, as for the kids in the show, Ken Weatherwax, who played Pugsley, had barely acted before. Uh, the biggest thing on his resume was a series of toothpaste commercials. But his uncle by marriage was Al Jolson. And his half-brother uh, was in the first three seasons of Lassie, and his uncles were two guys named Frank and Rudd Weatherwax, who were Lassie's trainers and the owners of the first dog to play the role. So, uh, yeah, Lassie, Adam's Family Connection. There you go. Very nice. Wow. Uh, Lisa Loring, who played Wednesday, told NBC executive David Levy at the audition, I don't read, and handed him the script back. And he thought she was being a diva, much like Leonardo DiCaprio during auditions with James Cameron for Titanic. Turned out she actually literally could not read because she was six years old. So Levy read her, all of her lines out to her and she repeated them back. It worked. Lauren would later say that she was discouraged from smiling on set to keep her character consistent. Yeah, she and Carolyn Jones got very close. She had a sad life. She, um, I guess it's w turned out well. Uh, her mother was a, like an alcoholic and uh, she had a kid at 16. Um, she married, uh, she had a bunch of, she basically married a porn star and who she met while doing makeup on one of his movies. She did, uh, had her own struggles with drugs and alcohol. It was bad. She had a, but, but, you know, they, they divorced 90, 1992 and she has, uh, I guess, turned her life around. Uh, sorry. Okay. The six foot nine, 250 pound Ted Cassidy played Lurch, being cast with virtually no professional acting experience. Oh, wait, he was the guy that was in the opening of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, he was always playing like the heavy, um, in, 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 in like, in, in brown face. <laughs> Sundance, when this is over, if he's dead, you can stay. Sundance, uh, I don't want to be a poor loser, but when this is over, if I'm dead, 
kill him. Love to. <laughs> That's a great scene. Cassidy was an accomplished keyboardist, and his hand, he was the thing. He was the disembodied hand thing that uh, is always popping out. Yeah, that's his hand. He would swap right and left hands just to sometimes to see if anyone would notice. No one ever did. Um, <laughs> that's great. I yeah. love that. But he was actually kind of sadly like typecast by this and just haunted by it. Um, John Aston called him the giant who wanted to play Hamlet, which will be the Aww. title of my memoirs. <laughs> the saddest children's book ever. Yeah, exactly. Um, he wasn't supposed to speak at all, but he ad-libbed the line, you rang, in, uh, in his audition. And they were like, that's hilarious, and started writing lines for him. He moved into voiceover work in the 70s. He voiced the Hulk in 76 oh. episodes of the Lou Ferrigno Bill Bixby show. He died in 1979, and he was cremated and uh, buried in the backyard of his Woodland Hills home that he shared with his girlfriend. And then she moved, and... Uh, his cremains went missing. They were either not relocated and found after the fact, or, or according to the guys in the Dearly Departed podcast, which I haven't been able to verify, some groundskeepers were, like, doing yard work and, like, found the urn and Ooh. and made off with it or something. The, uh, I, go, I was searching around, and a few years back, there was a, um, a GoFundMe to, like, get him a proper resting place or find... It did not reach completion, so that's... <laughs> That's very sad. So they don't know where Lurch's ashes are. But <laughs> another fun Monster Mash connection in 1965, Cassidy as Lurch cut a pop record with Gary S. Paxton, the absolutely insane producer of Monster Mash, called The Lurch. Uh, and he did it on Shindig with, um, no, that was, was that the episode that he did with, with Boris Karloff? Yes, that is the same episode. Uh, it is in which Boris Karloff does Monster Mash. And then they all do the lurch. <laughs> do you know how to do the lurch? I assume it's like the holly gully or the twist. Let's actually listen to this. I didn't listen the to Freddy. this. The Freddy. The frog. The frug. The, the, fr- the swim. The frug? Yeah, the frug. The, 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 the bird. Wait, we already said the bird. The trash? Now I'm just naming things. <laughs> naming things that make you feel happy. Birds, <laughs> trash, mashed potatoes. <laughs> Poor guy. Knowing that he had his aspirations to play Hamlet, this is so much worse. That's got more Votetown vibes than I would have thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Someone who did not get his own novelty dance was uh, Cousin It. (laughs) Actor Felix Silla uh, said of the role, a producer dreamed it up in Some Nightmare, which is also (laughs) the title of my memoirs. (laughs) They overdubbed the voice later. I think it was actually, might have been David Levy. Someone, there was a producer who just overdubbed, and then they like double-timed it with tape for the... Um, <laughs> that was incredible. I Wow, I just, I was not expecting that to come out of you. My cousin it voice? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they would just walk around on set in a full-length wig. Uh, but that was real human hair, which was a problem because it was super heavy and super flammable. And because this was the 60s and everyone was smoking all of the time, they eventually changed it to synthetic hair. Probably dipped in asbestos. <laughs> in the movie, it's the kid from um, 
the the creepy kid from Children of the Corn who plays oh, cousin. Oh yeah. no! Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is so much more terrifying. You pull off the cousin it hair, and it's the it's the kid from Children of the Corn. We have your woman, Outlander. Um. Okay. By March of 1964, the show's pilot had been filmed at a mildly redressed set left over from the unsinkable Molly Brown, friend All of the right. pod, the unsinkable Molly Brown. While the family's fictional address was 001 Cemetery Lane, the Munsters was 1313 Mockingbird Lane, for those of you in the bar trivia circuit, the house seen in the show was located at 21 Chester Place in Los Angeles. Originally built in 1887 for Henry Gregory Newhall of the Gold Rush Rich Newhall family, the home was eventually sold to Los Angeles oil tycoons and philanthropists Edward and Estelle Doheny. You will possibly recognize that name because they rented out the Chester Place apartment and lived in what is today the Doheny Mansion down the street, Greystone Manor, which is the uh, mansion that David Lynch lived in while completing Eraserheads, owned by the AFI. And uh, Doheny was the guy who There Will Be Blood is somewhat based on. I believe they may have filmed it in that mansion's bowling alley. Like the, the climactic scene of There Will Be Blood might actually be filmed there. Anyway, when Estelle Doheny died in 1958, she willed all the land in Chester Place to the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Los Angeles, uh, who made it a new satellite campus of Mount St. Mary's in 1962. The Adams Family Mansion was a part of the Catholic Archdiocese of Los Angeles. I don't know if that's appropriate or counterintuitive. I'm surprised they didn't burst in the flames. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, for the show, production composited the lower half of the house with some gothic touches for the exterior shots. Uh, unfortunately, this also meant there was no reason to use the house ever again. And by 1967, Mount St. Mary's incorporated many of Chester Place's historic homes into the college, but the Adams family house didn't make the cut, and it was demolished and paved to put up a parking lot. This is where we punch in Joni Mitchell doing the <laughs> from Big Yellow Taxi, the fakest laugh in recorded music. You know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> oh, of course, of course, I do. <laughs> it's her Julia Roberts laugh. <laughs> oh man, remember when Counting Crows covered that song? Yeah, but no laugh. <laughs> they omitted the laugh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Needs to be a new recurring bit on the show. We we punch in Joni Mitchell's <laughs> big yellow taxi laugh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, that's because what we should have done in Titanic when they just destroyed the grand staircase and just scrapped it. <laughs> Anytime something that's like beloved oh, yeah. just gets callously destroyed. <laughs> that's a recurring segment. <laughs> in, other, in the big yellow taxi corner of the show. Uh, since the 1980s, the land where the Adams family home used to be has been the track and field for Frank D. Lanterman High School. And today, the only original piece of the home still standing is the six globe street lamp built in front of the home's driveway back in 1903. Mm. Most of the other props sourced for the show, like the children's playroom where they had like a guillotine and stuff, uh, that was the work of the set decorator Ruby Levitt, who did The Sound of Music and Chinatown. Um, the massive bear, though, has a funny story in it. That was found by production manager Herb Brower, who told Cox that he, to get that bear, he got a hold of a guy who was a multimillionaire hunter who hunted polar bears. He had a bear in storage in Seattle. It was the largest bear ever shot in Alaska up until that time. 
The only reason we got that bear was the hunter had shot a slightly bigger bear, so this one was now superfluous. That is all he cared about, having the biggest bear. And funnily enough, despite the show's reputation as the ur-text for goths everywhere, the walls of the Adams house were bright pink. If you look up color set photos of it, it's this hideous, garish interior. It's like incredibly gaudy. They were also the first sitcom family to own a home computer, which is a big Univac-style piece of machinery that was named Wizzo and uh, and, uh, appeared in two episodes predicting the results of horse races and an upcoming election. And supposedly, the wicker chair that uh, Morticia sits in was from from here to eternity. Whoa. (laughs) Which I was not able to verify. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was partially filmed in... Was it in Hawaii or California? Malibu, I thought. Yeah, I think it was so the same the, beach where they did the opening of Greece. Right. Yes. But so the the whole vogue in interior decoration at the time was these was rattan. And so they had that uh. big that big uh plume backed rattan chair. Anyway, I guess they gave it to Carolyn Jones afterwards and she kept it in her house <laughs> for the rest of her life. When the show was canceled, people just descended on the on the set and basically raided everything that wasn't bolted down. Like uh, look- uh, Ted Cassidy took like the thing box and just a bunch of shit like that. I'm looking at the color photos of the set and it looks like Pee Wee's Playhouse. Like it's yeah. so weird looking. It's not the, you know, black and browns that I thought. Yeah. Funny you should mention that because Tim Burton was supposed to, one of the people that was approached to do the Adams Family movie and he turned it down to do Batman Returns. He chose eh, Equally? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, other than maybe Wednesday, now, at this point, inarguably the most famous thing about the Adams Family is Vic Mizzy's all-time banger of a theme song. Supposedly the first TV show to feature a harpsichord, which sure. tracks. <laughs> like, why would you have a harpsichord? Not? T- well, you know, it's funny, too, because he the, he also did the theme to Green Acres, and Green uh, Acres has, like, fuzz guitar on yeah. it. But very early, as far as having that effect actually on electric guitar in like on purpose, you know, this is still at the stage when people are like, like cutting speaker cones and stuff to get Dave Davies. Yeah. Dave Davies, uh, he, and, or it was Link Ray who stabbed it with a pencil to, to get that. That's, um, the monsters theme also kind of whips. The monsters theme does whip. Was that sampled in like some fallout boy song or something? Ah, yes, you're right. A song called Uma Thurman. Yeah. Mm. I hate that. <laughs> oh, the Munsters theme was nominated for a Grammy. Good. <laughs> As it should have been. Uh, yeah. Um, bro- <laughs> Vic Mizzy uh, was born in Brooklyn. He took organ lessons when he was just 12. Uh, had a couple of World War II era hits recorded by like Doris Day, Dinah Shore, the Andrews Sisters, Louis Prima. Uh, and then broke into television circa 1959. He did the music for Shirley Temple's storybook. Uh, the themes for a bunch of shows I've never heard of called Moment of Fear, Klondike, Kentucky Jones, and also the Don Rickles show. <laughs> Friend of the pod, Don Rickles. Originally, Filmways was going to, Filmways, the production company, was going to use canned music, Mizzy told Stephen Cox. Under deadline, Mizzy composed the theme, which he debuted live at the studio in front of all the executives. Whoa. Uh, Snapping his fingers at the appropriate time, which is just, <laughs> uh, apparently they just rolled this piano out of a closet and he was like, uh, like, there you go. Um, 
Filmways was too cheap to give him background singers, so all the voices on that are him and his music editor uh, overdubbing themselves, singing repeatedly, and also Ted Cassidy, the voice of Lurch, saying, neat, sweet, petite. That's what he says in that. That's weird. I don't I don't like that. Uh, also, he supposedly coined the word ookie, hmm. you know, for the rhyme for spooky. Um... Mizzy also stage-directed the show's opening sequence with the cast. It was just not very bizarre for a composer to do. He came onto the set and, and had them all... He brought a metronome onto the set and had them all snap in time for it and oh, for the opening credits. I mean, I guess a choreographer would be able to get people to snap in time, but I guess it is Well, such actors. A, a, <laughs> <laughs> he said they did in about one take, so... Oh. Um, he held on to ownership of the song's publishing rights, which it proved very lucrative for him later because it's become like a sporting event thing, which I completely f- always forget until I, the blue moons when I do take in the sporting airs. Um, Why? I don't know. It's like Seven Nation Army, dude. It's like Seven Nation uh, Army okay. gets played at baseball games all the time and people are just like, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It just, he made so much. I can much... stamp to this. <laughs> yeah, well, really. But he apparently made a boatload of money just from that, more than like the actual themes thing. He t- said in an interview le- years later, that's why I'm living in Bel Air. Two finger snaps and you live in Bel Air. Uh, in addition to writing the theme to the Adams Family, Vic Mizzy produced a full LP of the original Adams Family soundtrack music, which was released in 1965. That same year, Sonny Bono, of all people, expanded on the Thing musical cue from the show. I uh, basically expanded it into an entire instrumental song, which Vic Missy then successfully sued to have blocked from being released. Sonny Bono talked about this in 1991. He said, Vic Missy got pissed. It was called <laughs> The Thing, and I did it with Charlie and Brian, my two managers. We thought it was going to be a hit. I liked the song. It was fun. We recorded it, but I don't think it got pressed up. And later, Sonny Bono, with members of the famous Wrecking Crew session musicians, including iconic drummer Hal Blaine, who's played with everybody, played with everybody, did the famous (laughs) opening for the the Ronettes, Be My Baby, Brian Wilson, Beach Boys, Pet Sound stuff. Uh, They built themselves as The Fiends and released a version of the theme song from the Addams Family under the title Thank You Thing, published by Phil Spector's Mother Bertha Music. swings i know well how bland baby (laughs) mizzy was upset that he wasn't tapped to do the adams family movie soundtracks in the 1990s but he never stopped working uh released a compilation of his works with the excellent title songs for the jogging crowd (laughs) on his own label uh vixter records as recently as 2003 and then he died in 2009 we salute you for your service even though i will begrudgingly concede that the monsters theme song is better the Adams Family did well in the ratings and occasionally even beat out Bob Hope's NBC show, but it was canceled after just two seasons. And part of the problem was the public's fatigue with horror-adjacent spooky culture stuff. And one of the other problems was that for a lot of the public, it was easy to confuse the Adams Family with the Munsters. And there was a cartoon in Family Circus in 1966 where uh, there's a middle-aged couple squinting at a TV set with the caption, It looks like we tuned into either the Munsters, the Adams Family... Or Phyllis Diller. Oh, that's mean. <laughs> I mean, that that sounds like a Charles Adams cartoon, though. It sort of does. Yeah. yeah that's, that's like 
oddly mean for Family Circus. Wow, Bill Keen, savage. Must have been in his drinking years. <laughs> yeah, or he just hated Charles Adams. Or Phyllis Diller. <laughs> or Phyllis, well, I'm going to be up there. Uh, John Aston told the Capital Times in 1965 how much he hated seeing the two shows lumped in the same category. He said, you see, the Munsters are monsters on the outside, but perfectly normal people in every other respect. The Adams family, on the other hand, are not monsters at all, but terribly daffy in almost every respect. Like the Adams cartoons, our show is an attack on the cliches of life. A reverse joke. That's an interesting way of putting it. A reverse joke. Huh. I, John Aston loved being in the Adams family. <laughs> he like, oh, he loved being with Carolyn Jones. Well, that, aw, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so cute. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, both the Adams family and the Monsters were defeated by completely different competitors rather than each other. ABC's newly launched Batman soundly beat CBS's The Munsters in the ratings, and CBS's new World War II comedy Hogan's Heroes defeated ABC's Adams Family when they went up against each other in their respective time slots. In James Pliant's biography of Carolyn Jones, In Morticia's Shadow, he quoted the actress as hanging the cancellation of the, on the firing of ABC executive Edgar J. Sherrick, who would be one of the people instrumental in getting the show on the air as the network's president. She says in the book, the minute he'd been fired, all his shows were taken off, and we went off the air with the 32 share, which I believe is very high. I have no idea. I, <laughs> I found all these quotes about them being canceled, and they were using a lot of TV terms that I uh, didn't understand. Um, for example, Jackie Coogan, in a 1974 interview for Cinema Texas, a publication from the Communication Arts Department at the University of Texas at Austin, he said, we had a good show going. But the president's wife of ABC had one favorite in show business. His name was Milton Burl. So she begged her husband to hire Milton Burl. Our show was canceled with an 18 and a half rating. And they brought Milton Burl in. So, blame Batman and Milton Burl. Um, it is huge. <laughs> it is famously anaconda, <laughs> as he called it. So uh, 32 means that having a 32 share means that 32% of all television consumption was uh, on the Adams family, which sounds like a lot, but I guess considering there were three television networks plus maybe to PBS or a local channel, I guess it's a part of the yeah. course, but yeah. these days people would kill for probably a 10 share. Right. Batman had come on opposite the monsters, John Aston told the Television Academy. A lot of programming people thought about Adams and Monsters as the same kind of show. Batman came on with a big rush. It was a storm and tough to go up against. I think there was some thinking that the Adams family would go away, but he actually appeared in Batman as the Riddler. Uh, and Ted Cassidy uh, also made a guest appearance. 60s TV was a small place. Mm -hmm. uh, the only explanation I ever got from anybody at ABC, Herb Brower told Cox, was, quote, demographics. <laughs> at the time, the system... Plastics. Was I was just about to say, it's like plastics of the graduate. At this time, the system was just sprouting, and every other word was demographics show this, and demographics don't show this. It was demographics time. They felt the ratings had dropped, and if they kept it on the air, they would continue to drop. Despite the show's central role in creating the popular image of the Adams Family, there weren't that many material rewards in being in the show, even as it aired repeatedly in reruns. We've talked about this. I forget. We were just talking about this recently. Uh, people in those days were 
paid for the episodes they filmed, and that was kind of it. Uh, John Aston said, in those days, we got paid for five reruns, and that was it. Oof. Yeah. Uh, this also included series, you know, nominally the series creator, Charles Adams. He said in 1982 to the Washington Post, they gave me money each week, but after the first runs ended, I didn't get anything. No residuals. That was a mistake made by the big old fat law firm I let represent me. I believe I had 4% of the gross. I remember seeing some document reporting one point something million dollars with a rundown like this. $400,000 foreign sales, $700,000 something else, etc., etc. Mr. Adam's share, $218.11. It was just a classic error, that's all, not getting residuals. So it was a lesson for... Cartoonists? Yeah. I... <laughs> Lessons for all of for the rabid subsection of TMI fans. Professional cartoonists angling for... Uh... TV adaptation Network TV deal, yeah. <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean... You do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now we must come to the real monster of our story. 
producer Scott Rudin. <laughs> um, the Adams family lay dormant for the next 20 years or so until Scott Rudin, who is a very successful uh, Hollywood and Broadway producer and a terrible, awful human being, allegedly, uh, <laughs> for legal reasons. <laughs> Although off the record, not. Not allegedly. Yeah, you can call someone a terrible person. I don't think that's, uh, I think it's an opinion. That falls under opinion. Okay. Well, creative license. Scott Rudin is a tremendous piece of shit. Um, he was then at 20th Century Fox and he apparently was coming back from a screening with a bunch of other execs. Um, he told the LA Times this in 1992. Barry Diller, who was the studio chief at the time, uh, Leonard Goldberg, marketing chief, Tom Shurek. And then he said, when Tom's kids started singing the Adams Family theme, and suddenly, everyone in the van was singing the theme, letter perfect, note for note. So then the very next day, he had lunch with Diller and Goldberg and was like, let's make an Adams Family movie. And they were like, sure, why not? Uh, the problem was there that Orion Pictures, who is one of the most famous boom and bust stories in all of Hollywood, um, at this point, they were still riding high. They had done Amadeus in 1984, Platoon and Hannah and Her Sisters in 1986, Mississippi Burning in 1988. And then, like, what, five years later, they wouldn't exist? Yeah, I don't know what happened to them. Financial mismanagement. But they had the rights. They had bought the Filmways Productions archives, uh, and they were holding out hope of doing their own Adams Family reboot on TV. So that got hung up for a while. And Scott Rudin approached Barry Sonnenfeld, one of my favorite under-the-radar sort of directors. Barry Sonnenfeld does not get enough credit, man. Guy was a... Well, I mean, it was. I think it was Wild Wild West was, was what... Killed him. He did. Uh, yeah. He did the Adams Family movies. He did the Men in Black movies. He did and Men then in Black. He did Wild Wild West. And then uh, he did I Get Shorty. Don't. You know. Uh, well, yeah. But, he but was what a- about after Wild Wild West in '99? Like, what did he do? <sighs> RV with Robin Williams. Oh Christ! That uh, Nine Lives. A Dave Barry adaptation starring Tim Allen called Big Trouble. Oh, I I read that book. I loved Dave Barry. Dave Barry was like yeah. one of the five people that made me want to be a writer. Nine Lives. Oh man, God, this really did tank his career, dude. This sucks. Yeah, because I always forget that he got his start with the Coen Brothers. He did Blood Simple and Raising Arizona. He did Big. He did When Harry Met Sally. He did Miller's Crossing. He did Misery. He was cinematographer on all these incredible movies. Anyway, I think that's how uh, Rudin knew him um, from Big and Raising Arizona. Uh, and he approached Barry Sonnenfeld with the first draft of the script by Carolyn Thompson and Larry Wilson, who had written Edward Scissorhands. One thing I do have to note about Barry Sonnenfeld, uh, he told Sci-Fi that he was more of a fan of the Adams cartoons and preferred the Munsters. So he's not dead to me. Uh, <laughs> but he didn't like the first draft of the script, and he told Scott Rudin as much. Hollywood Reporter did an oral history of the first Adams Family film in 2021, and. Uh, Sonnenfeld says, I tell Scott all the reasons why the script is no good, and he says, that's the reason you should direct, because you're right about all of those issues. He also told <laughs> told Barry Sonnenfeld that Tim Burton and Terry Gilliam had both already turned this project down, which is counterintuitive negotiation. In his memoirs, Barry Sonnenfeld writes that Orion executives had one very specific hang-up about this, which was the thing. <laughs> um, they were, like, he said, this is him quoting them, Our first concern is we recently did a movie, The Hand, with a disembodied hand in the lead, and we lost a lot of money on it. (laughs) 
That movie cost six and a half million and we made 2.4 at the box office. And that didn't include prints and advertising. It was a disaster. But Scott Rudin assuaged their fears about having a disembodied hand at the center of their picture. And the project <laughs> moved into casting. Uh, Sonnenfeld told The Guardian in 2018 that Scott and I both agreed on Angelica Houston and Raul Julia, who had been a big Broadway guy, did Kiss of the Spider Woman, some other stuff, as Morticia and Gomez. The studio wanted Cher, but we felt that would unbalance the film. We didn't want it to be about stars. And then hilariously, in that same article, Angelica Houston tells them, Barry Sonnenfeld, Scott Rudin, and I met for lunch at the Beverly Hills Hotel. They said, we'd really like you to play Morticia Adams. I said, if you don't mind me asking, why not share? <laughs> Two oh, yeah, this was right around when she was in um, Mermaids with uh, Christina Ricci. With Christina Ricci, yeah. And it's just so hilarious to me that people were like, oh, get share in it. <laughs> like, and then so but Angelica Houston says, I don't know what possessed me to suggest another actress. But they said, no, we'd like you to do it. She based the character on her friend Jerry Hall. Wait, of Married to Of Married Mick to Jagger? Mick Jagger, yes. Uh, oh. She said, I've always seen Jerry as a perfect example of motherhood. <laughs> Although in the, in the LA Times article from around the time of the making of the film, she said that um, she also based them on the Beals, who are the Kennedy uh, or Bouvier, I guess, um, extended Bouvier family who are portrayed in the iconic 1975 documentary Grey Gardens. Which makes oh, the wow. second appearance of 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 the Bouvier family, family yeah. in the Charles Adams extended universe. Um, yeah, but this is crazy. Uh, she she talks in the Guardian thing. She said, "I've never really liked looking normal, and I've always liked a faintly bleached out look. So I was really happy about the way the cameraman lit me as Morticia. The makeup was very intense. I had stickers attached to my temples, rubber bands that met behind my head, and then on top of that, the wig." Fake nails, eyelashes, and the corset. Individually, they add up to something monumental. It was hard to move. There were certain things one could do with one's hands, but that was about it. Fortunately, I wanted to keep Morticia very iconic and still. I had a bonfire of the vanities at the end of the movie where I took all the fake stuff, made a pile, and set it on fire. It holds a lot of sentimentality for me because I grew up reading Charles Adams in the bathroom, aged six, pretending I was Morticia in the mirror. Which is so cute. Uh, she, they, they said she could film for like a couple hours and then she would have to go lay down because of this corset and the dress that they put her in. Uh, but this is crazy. Another interview for comicbook.com, Sonnenfeld told, uh, he said that the Morticia's look in the film was not limited to makeup or wardrobe. He said when he interviewed Owen Roisman, who is their cinematographer, he very specifically said to him, uh, there's this thing called motivated light in film lighting where if someone is standing and there's a window to their left, the left side of their face will be brighter. It's motivated from the window. Basically, you use light sources that make sense. And he said that when he interviewed Owen, he said, I want Morticia to have her own motivated light. I, I don't care if she's standing right by a window, her lighting, even in the scene with other people in the scene, everyone can be lit from the window, but I want Morticia to be lit totally differently as if she has her own motivated light wherever she goes. And this guy, Owen Roisman, said, I love that idea. <laughs> he said that he one of his visual inspirations was a, a still photographer, like the old studio silent era black and white film photography, where he said, I want her to look like she's always in a photograph where you darken the forehead and the chin and you accentuate their eyes and add filtration. 
and he it's said like a that's butterfly what, effect. I think I think they called it. And he said that's what Owen. That's what this guy did. And you know, I was watching cl- clips from this movie. Uh, it's not great. Like actually, funnily enough, and would get. I'm skipping ahead here, but the second movie, Adam's Family Values, is better reviewed. Like people really did not like this movie that much. Yeah, Roger Ebert gave it like two out of four stars. It only has like a sixty something at Rotten Tomatoes. But holy crap, does it look beautiful! The wardrobe, the interiors, the mansion, this lighting that they gave it, like, man, stuff from this era, like, not to shit on Wednesday again, but like stuff from this era, like, it just has, it's it's shot on film, it's well lit, there's just like a baseline level of like, tactile craft to this stuff, that even when the the plot and whatever, it's all of, all the other stuff doesn't necessarily add up to the best, like, masterpiece level, you're still just like, Holy crap, that is a beautiful world that they built. Digression over. <laughs> it is, I mean, but did you watch any of the clips of it? Oh, man, it's just, Oh, wait, yeah. from the movie? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you meant Wednesday. Beautiful. No, f*** that. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm sure it's fine, but it's just all like, they just do everything digitally now, and it's just like done in in this, with this, like, all of these lighting effects, like, you're, they're just like, eh, get some non-union animator to do it after the fact some guy dying of you know lack of air circulation in a warehouse in santa barbara like get him to do it don't don't hire a cinematographer who knows the history of film lighting sorry grandpa's grandpa's yelling at the clouds again (laughs) well now we got to talk about gomez who is played by raul julia who's then a big broadway star barry sonnefeld told the hollywood reporter the character loves life Loves death, loves pain, loves joy, loves his family. The great thing about Rules Gomez, you can see the joy, whether he's happy or angry or sad, he's still joyfully full of life. And friend of the pod, Dan Hedea, is in Adam's family, the first Adam's family as well. It's Raul Julia is a joy in this film. I mean, he there's there's uh he meets his lawyer, Dan Hedea, Louis Tully, and, and they have like a sword fight. And <laughs> And Louis Tully's like, look behind you, and then like throws his briefcase at him. And, and Raul Julia just comes up and he's like, dirty pool, old man. I love it. <laughs> it's just it's such a such a zest for life in it. It's so great. You know who doesn't have a zest for life in this? Christina Rishi has Wednesday. Uh, she was fresh off her star-making turn in Mermaids, as I mentioned earlier, opposite Cher, and she impressed everyone at auditions and on the set, with Angelica Houston telling The Guardian, I felt like I was playing Christina's daughter most of the time. She was incredibly informed, smart, arch, and really knew how to stare. And Sonnefeld continued to The Hollywood Reporter, whenever the cast had a problem, they would go to Christina Rishi because she was the most articulate and intellectually gifted of any cast member. <laughs> I just love that so much. And this reverence to Christina Ray, she really came to bear in, a, in, in an incident that occurred during the first table read uh, where the cast all decided that they hated the scripted ending uh, in which it was revealed that Christopher Lloyd's Uncle Fester is actually an imposter, though the family winds up adopting him anyway. In the movie as it stands, he he's introduced as an imposter and then he gets his memory back at the end when he is struck by lightning. <laughs> so the cast all gathered in a circle and told christina rishi all the reasons why they thought this was a bad idea and then they sent her to go talk to director barry sonnenfeld and sonnenfeld said give us a minute 
So Scott Rudin, screenwriter Paul Rudnick, and director Barry Sonnefeld went into a corner. Barry Sonnefeld said, I think she's kind of right. And Rudnick and Rudin agreed. They asked Christopher Lloyd, who was playing Fester, do you care if he's the real Fester or the fake Fester? And Christopher Lloyd said, man, no! I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. So we rewrote the ending based on the cast disagreement. Uh, speaking of Christopher Lloyd, Sonnefeld told comicbook.com in 2021, I think the hardest role to cast was Fester. We started going down the road of dumpy, rounder, more Fester-looking actors. We talked to Robbie Coltrane for a little while, and there were some others. Robbie Coltrane played Hagrid, I believe, in the Harry Potter movies, mm -hmm. and uh, and the rest. <laughs> uh, the only other movie I can recall of him is he was in Nuns on the Run, I think, with Eric Idle. That is correct. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, most famous for playing Hagrid. Barry Sonnefeld continued, Then we thought Christopher Lloyd would be really good, but Chris is tall and thin, and Fester is drawn very differently. We actually did a film test where we hired Chris, and then we gave him these prosthetics to make his face round. We shot the test, and we shot an actual scene with him and Elizabeth Wilson, and he looked terrible. He looked like he was from a different movie because no one else had prosthetics. Chris's makeup and prosthetics just looked all wrong, but Chris really wanted it. He really likes to hide behind the prosthetics to create a character, but we didn't want it. And Christopher Lloyd talked about his long-standing love of the Addams Family and the Guardian. He said, when I was a kid, I used to get this magazine full of cartoons, and there was always an Addams Family script, and I got really involved. I didn't get involved with the Addams Family script. Okay, that's true. <laughs> if you're Christopher uh, Lloyd. When I, right, yeah. And I got really involved when I was eight or nine with Uncle Fester. I just thought he was the best. He's slightly evil. He's funny to look at. He was a character. So when decades later, out of the blue, Paul Rudnick, who was the screenwriter and uh, of, I think, both Adam's Family movies, uh, asked mm -hmm. me to be Uncle Fester in this movie, I just jumped on it. Kind of see him as like being related to Judge Doom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is so unnerving to see him with hair in the first scene of this movie when he's introduced as the the imposter. Uh, there's this great anecdote that Barry Sonnenfeld tells um, about the screen test when they had him do the with uh, prosthetics. He said, we called Chris to the screening room to show him the test, to show him that we didn't want to do it. And unfortunately, Chris didn't know exactly what our issue was when we came to the studio to look at the test. Cinematographer... Owen Roisman was interviewing stand-ins for Fester, and Chris had to go past all these people in the hallway who looked like Fester. So we get in and screen footage for Chris Lloyd, and I say, well, what do you think? And Chris says, well, uh, I can do it better. Well, what are you talking about? He goes, well, it was a test. I didn't know it was like an audition. I said, no, Chris, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I, I saw all these actors in line. <laughs> I said, no, we're not replacing you. We're looking for a stand-in. Christopher Lloyd thought he was being marched in front of all of his own replacements. <laughs> but he, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld told Sci-Fi, Chris did an amazing job. Between the time we would slate and say roll camera and be ready to shoot, which was four seconds, he would come out and lose two feet of height and gain 50 pounds of body weight. And his face went from narrow and thin to round just instantly. I don't know how he did it. I guess he scrunched his head into his shoulders but he did an amazing job playing Fester because he doesn't look anything like that. That is correct. He did just suck his neck into his into the the wardrobe that they had, which went up to auction recently and didn't sell. Maybe not recently, but a while ago. I found a Hollywood Heritage Heritage auctions. They sold a bunch of Adams Family stuff. Um, he's also apparently bending his knees slightly in every shot to appear shorter, which must have been 
uh, agony. And I've been unable to verify this fact, but I love it so much. The fat suit that he wears under the coat is supposedly the same one worn by Bruno Kirby in Godfather Part 2, which I wasn't able As to verify. young Clemenza? Yes. Uh, rounding out the family in this film is Canadian magician Christopher Hart as Thing, um, and in-demand seven-foot Dutch guy Carol Strulken, who is uh, <laughs> the tall Dutch dude in Twin Peaks, uh, as Lurch. Oh. Um, <laughs> I th- what is the? I don't even remember the kid's name who plays Pugsley, but it's my favorite bit of casting for him because they found him when his sister came into audition for Wednesday. So they just look out of the waiting room at presumably a sea of dark-haired young women who are going to play, auditioning to play Wednesday, and they just see this kid sitting there reading Maggie's thing, and they're like, yeah, you, you're Pugsley. <laughs> He's like, me? <laughs> and his sister's like, am I Wednesday? And they're like, no. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> Didn't that, I mean, that's a whole, like, listicle of people who got roles in film because they went with somebody else. It was like, yeah. didn't somebody in Greece get one of the, one of the T-Birds, I think. Didn't somebody in Jackass? Well, you would like, know that. Oh, it, it was Jackass, wasn't it? Ah, oh, I don't have the doc handy. Oi. Jim Workman. Jimmy Workman was his name. Yeah, Pugsley, the, like, the most forgettable member wait. of the Adams Family. Well, Wait, he he's the older brother of Ariel Winter from uh, Modern Family. I wonder if she was the one auditioning. Yeah, wait. No, no, there's no way. She's a child. Yeah, yeah. The eight the eight year old workman had accompanied his older sister, oh Chanel, uh, to audition for the part of Wednesday Adams, which okay. went to Christina Ricci. Okay, so currently oh. she's the voice of Wendy in Wendy's commercials. <laughs> oh, and this Jimmy Workman guy who played Pugsley was in as good as it gets too. Well, uh, also, according to Angelica Houston, the woman who played uh, Grandmama in the first film is a German-born actress named Judith Molina. She founded the radical political theater troupe, The Living Theater, which oh, wow. uh, yeah. is in, that's in West Village, right? I believe Very famous, so, like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she was high on this whole thing. <laughs> Angelica Houston said she coped with the extensive makeup by... Smoking an endless series of joints in her trailer. That was, uh, I believe, to The Guardian. Ah, and we return, as the arc of the universe does, to Scott Rudin's Inhumanity to Man. (laughs) The Addams Family movie was Barry Sonnenfeld's directorial debut, and he did not have a good time making it. You put an exclamation in that, on that sentence, which I've never (laughs) seen you do, so you know it's serious. (laughs) Uh, as Barry Sonnenfeld told Empire Magazine back in 1991, I lost 13 pounds in the first 10 weeks alone, and the tension was just incredible. And in that same interview, he mentioned passing out on the set and coming to weeping while he did. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I remember begging Barry Scott Sonnenfeld Rudin. is so neurotic. His end quote in this is really my favorite. Sorry, go ahead. I remember begging Scott Rudin, please let me get up and get going again. If we have to stop every time I faint or cry, we'll never get this movie done. (laughs) And a fun prank Scott Rudin pulled was having a different director's name on Barry Sonnenfeld's chair every time a reporter came to the set. 
He put Tim Burton on the chair. He put Joe Dante's name on the chair. He put Terry Gilliam's name on the chair and David Lynch's name on the chair. Seeing Rob Reiner's name on the chair one day, Barry Sonnefeld quipped to the reporter, Rob wouldn't have done this movie. He's not that crazy. <laughs> and now my... F- oh, do you, you oh, gotta take, Go you got to take this then. This is no, your favorite. No, no, please. Set okay. it up. No, Set me you. up. Set me up. Right. <laughs> Barry Sonnefeld wrote in his memoir that Scott and I disagreed on many aspects of the cast, sets, props, and wardrobe. Rudin, screenwriter Paul Rudnick, and I would meet in his office, and Scott would charmingly lie about everything we had opposing opinions about, or he would just yell at me. <laughs> so Barry Sonnenfeld developed what is probably my all-time favorite Hollywood coping mechanism to deal with, with these moments. He said, the, I realized, I think this is in his memoir, I realized the only, because he's told this anecdote multiple times, which is what makes me love it that much. I realized the only way to deal with it was to out-juvenile Scott. When he would start to scream at me, I would get off the couch and remove all the bolsters and pillows. Using the back and bottom bolsters as building blocks, I would turn them into walls and build a fort on top of the couch. Crawling into one end I'd left open, I'd stuff a pillow into the gap and yell, I can't hear you, I'm in the fort. The part of this that amazed Rudnick and me was that Rudin would never invade the sanctity of my fort. <laughs> he'd bend over and scream at me, but he'd never remove a pillow. <laughs> he also tells of one horrifying anecdote where his wife was ho- his, his, his wife was hospitalized at the time. They thought she was very seriously ill. And they were shooting in uh, New York, I think. Or he had to get on a plane to New York. And they were shooting a film with a bunch of kids and he's trying to rap and he's like, okay, we're, we're done. And Scott like, uh, no, we're not done. We need pickup shots of these kids crying, <laughs> which is an amazing pool quote for his career. <laughs> Scott Rudin needed children crying. <laughs> and so he was like, I don't care how you do it. Make those children cry. And so Barry Sonnenfeld went over to the kids and was like, well, kids, good news is we're done filming. Bad news is you all have to get measles shots now. <laughs> and, and he before he did this, he told this. He told the cameraman he was like, I'm, uh, "Set up shots on each one of those kids' face. I'm gonna go talk to them, and then when they start crying, film them." So he went over and told all of them that they had to get measles shots, and the kids started crying. And that is the take you see in the movie. And then he went to visit his hospitalized wife. <laughs> Um, filming problems continued to mount with three months left of filming. It's, uh, Owen Roisman, the aforementioned director photographer quit to go on another film. Uh, A guy named Gail Tattersall, the new DP came on to finish it and was hospitalized within a few weeks. And Sonnenfeld had to take on director of photography duties and also direct. Uh, Raul Julia had to miss filming for several days when a blood vessel burst in his eye. And then Orion, who is in its death spiral at this point, decided to sell the film, but with however long left in production, to Paramount. um, And didn't tell Rudin and Sonnenfeld. They found it out from a Hollywood reporter, reporter named Andrea King. Um... The budget for this film was not crazy. It only went up from what they told them from 25 mil to 30 mil with a couple of rewrites. But what happened was that Hook was coming out in the holiday season. And Orion was concerned that Hook was going to come out and steamroll everything else. And they basically thought they were going to take a huge loss on this and were decided to cut their losses and sold it to Paramount, which was a big, dumb mistake and may have saved them, <laughs> may have saved the studio had they hung on to it. 
Uh, Sonnenfeld told Sci-Fi, they sold the film halfway through to someone at Paramount. That person, later that same day, was fired for other reasons. Hollywood. It's a magical industry. And the person that replaced them didn't like our movie, and we were still only halfway done shooting. And then this is funny. Once we finished it, and Barry London and Arthur Cohen, who were marketing and distribution guys at Paramount, saw the movie, they loved it. They were the ones who said, we'll give you more money if you can get MC Hammer to write a song for us, which is an incredibly 1990 thing to say. So Sonnenfeld continued, I knew he was a car collector, so I parked my 1962 Lincoln Continental in front of the entrance where we were meeting him. And when the meeting was over, I walked to the elevator downstairs with him and I said, how many cars do you have? He said, 11. And I said, I think it's going to be 12. And he said, wait, that's not your Lincoln, is it? And I said, yeah. And I sold him my Lincoln in the elevator. (laughs) The next day, he came and paid cash for it. So Adam's Groove is the second single from uh, MC Hammer's 1991 album, Too Legit to Quit, his fifth and last top 10 single in the US, and the recipient of the Golden Raspberry Awards for worst original song at the 1991 Razzies. Anyway... One last indignity for the film. Oh, I'm sorry. The second to last indignity <laughs> for the film. Uh, Sonnenfeld wanted to drop this big old-fashioned musical number into it. And so he films a scene in which Fester and Gomez do this dance called the Mamushka. That was written by Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who were these actual Broadway legends who were involved in, among many other things over decades, singing in the rain. Mark Shaman is an Oscar short of an EGOT. Uh, he wrote the music and co-wrote the lyrics to uh, Hairspray. So they wrote this musical number, they filmed it, and then test audiences didn't like it, so they hacked like 90% of it. Oh, and then David Levi, David Levy, who's still alive, uh, sued them. Who's the show's, TV show's original producer? Yes, he, he sued them, I believe, kind of correctly, alleging that since so much of the show originated a lot of the concepts that you see in the movie... He was owed rights to it. And Paramount agreed. They settled out of court. But so that was the last hurdle of that finish line was being sued by the original creative team behind it. Well, despite its tortured production, the Adams family hauled in an impressive $24 million on its opening weekend, doubling its already healthy projection. Well, Titanic only did $28.6 million in its opening weekend, so that's not bad. Mm-hmm. Barry Sonnenfeld told The Hollywood Reporter, There had been months and months of flops, and everyone thought the Adams Family would do really well and open to $12 million, which in 1991 was a really big opening. I should have enjoyed it more, he continued. I remember getting calls from famous people all weekend, mainly about the box office. I remember getting a call from <laughs> enemy of the pod, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who told me how <laughs> great the movie was. And I kept saying, well, it's not my movie, it's Paramount's movie, and they did a great job of marketing it and distributing it. Then Scott Rudin called me on Sunday night and said, what do you think? I said, Paramount did a great job. And Scott interrupted me and said, Barry, if you can't be happy this weekend, your mother won. (laughs) That is an all-time quote. (laughs) The film, unfortunately, wasn't a huge critical hit. Roger Ebert, as you mentioned earlier, only gave it two out of four stars, and it currently sits at 67% on Rotten Tomatoes. But it went on to make $191.5 million worldwide, which pretty much guaranteed its sequel, Adam's Family Values. Uh, Weirdly, as you also mentioned earlier, a much better reviewed film, though it made a lot less. 
Angelica Houston was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress, and the film was nominated for an Academy Award for Achievement in Costume Design. Following the wave of interest in the franchise, a 1992 animated television series notably saw John Astin reprise his role as Gomez almost 30 years after his first appearance in the role. That was nominated for four daytime Emmys, including one for Aston, while a much less well-received direct-to-video film, The Addams Family Reunion, which notably does star Tim Curry as Gomez, was released in 1998. But the family kept lumbering on. There was a Broadway and touring musical that was critically savaged, but apparently very profitable in 2010-2011. Two animated films released in 2019 and 2021, and now, of course, Netflix's Wednesday, which is supposedly the streamer's third most popular English language series of all time. And one last completely out of nowhere success story for the Adams family. You're a pinball guy, I say, with nothing to back that up. Yeah. Based on your love of the Who. <laughs> and analog era toys, sure. Yeah. The Bally Adams Family pinball machine is the best-selling pinball machine of all time. Did you? Would you have guessed that? No. Would you have guessed they were making pinball machines in 1992? They were, because home video... Arcades were still doing really well. Home video consoles had not really taken over at this point, and arcades were still doing big, big money. Twenty Over 20,000 units sold of that. And it's funny wow. because it it's one of these things that hits at such a bizarre nexus of cultural trends apparently pinball technology was at an all-time high in the early 90s and there was a wave of nostalgia for mid-century kitsch right twilight zone tales from the crypt were also big pinball machine successes at the time i got this from just reading like popular mechanics and smithsonian mag about the adams family pinball machine which i had no idea about scott porges at popular mechanics writes the Adams Family pinball machine featured plenty of next-gen features, <laughs> such as a moving mechanical thing Ooh. that picked up the balls, an enormous number of scoring modes, new dialogue recorded by the film stars specifically for the game. Wow. And he says virtually every pinball game since has taken design cues from it. So don't bet against James Cameron. Don't bet against the Adams Family. But the real legacy of the Adams Family was the pinball machine. <laughs> It was the Didn't machine. see that coming. That's an M. Night Shyamalan worthy twist. <laughs> um, yeah, I. You know what? Do, what do you say about Adam's Family, man? It's such a such a neat, weird property. I people were like sort of Monday morning quarterbacking like the success of Wednesday, being like, of course it was going to be a huge hit. Like there's a TikTok dance scene, and Jenna Ortega is super hot right now. But like, I don't actually think that there's any reason you could bet on this bizarre popularity of this franchise. Like it is, you could argue that in kind of a cynical way that it's sort of like Tim Burton, hot topic, like goth light. Like it sort of has this veneer of counterculturalism without being particularly insidious, but it is so weird, is weird. and so deeply specific and such a specific aesthetic to have clung on for a century, like nearly a century, the Adams family has been in part of American culture. I love that. John Aston, I'm going to go out in one of his quotes in his Television Academy interview, which is like four hours long and incredible. You should look it up. What the Adams family says is it doesn't matter what you're like outside, it's inside that counts. That's why people who are disowned by society like the show so much. Real values are there underneath. 
During the run of the show, psychiatrists wrote articles about how it was the healthiest show on the air. And echoing what Barry Sonnenfeld said about Raul Julia as Gomez, Sean Astin calls the Ad- or John Astin calls the Adams family an affirmation of life. Can't think of anything better to say about it. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been too much information. I'm Alex Heigel. And I'm Jordan Rontog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Yes. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.